Hello and welcome to Las Blancas podcast. I'm your host, Om Arvin, and I'm joined by Grant Little. And today, about half a day, really, after the first match of the Olympic semifinals, we're here to talk about the United States' loss to Canada and then Sweden's victory over Australia. So it'll be Sweden-Canada in the final and for the bronze medal match, the United States-Australia. Obviously, the United States losing was a rather big upset. We kind of discussed beforehand that, yeah, there's a bit of a rivalry there. Well, Canada will come out and, and be fired up, right? We got to be wary of players like Christine Sinclair. But ultimately, our conclusion was the United States has to get it done, right? This is a matchup that they have to win. And they didn't. And overall, it... It was a pretty atrocious showing, especially in that first half. I'm not even convinced Canada played that amazing. But, I mean, people will point maybe to, to some of the XG at the end and say, oh, the United States maybe deserved it more. But I think when you factor in game state, that I think maybe one or two of the chances were overrated a little bit. With that penalty Canada got, I mean, 1-0 is not at all out of the ordinary, given, given the way we saw things play out in that game. And it just wasn't good enough for the United States. Grant, I know that wasn't easy for you to watch. We both had to wake up super early, and I know you had probably higher hopes than that And for, for the U.S. to go out like this. I mean, I know there's the bronze medal match, but to be honest, I mean, how much do we care about that? It's, it's something that will criticize the U.S. further if they don't win, but the goal was gold, and that's gone now. Just what are your general feelings after watching that? Yeah, to be honest, I kind of had a bad feeling going into this. Canada hadn't beat us for 20 years. We'd already played them twice in an Olympics before, once in a semifinal before. And it was this 4-3 extra time victory for the U.S. where Alex Morgan scores the 123rd minute and there were some questionable calls. And Canada is still pretty pissed about it. And like they were talking about revenge in the, the press conferences and everything. And I think that this team just was not on. You can try and point to tactics or whatever, and I think at times in this tournament they've been off, but you could also not really tell because no one for this team has played well. It's really, really strange. I've never seen anything like it. You've seen people have bad days, but this entire team had a horrible tournament. Nobody really played up to the standard. Other than actually Tierna Davidson, who I thought, you know, was super, super, super hard done by giving up that penalty, 22 years old, starting an Olympic semifinal, and you give up a penalty that ends up resulting in your exit. But I think you can't really even point the finger. Yeah, it was a tough challenge, but you're in an empty stadium. You've got to be communicating to your other, your, your teammates better than that. Like she's running with her back to the onrushing Rose and her goalkeeper there, Adriana French is there. You've got all of these experienced players. You need to be really shouting and letting her know. Um, I think it, you know, kind of bringing it to a larger thing that has been spoken about a lot during this Olympics is mental health and kind of the mental state of the team. I feel like they're really always under this immense, immense pressure where you need to win. You need to win convincingly. And normally they've really kind of battled through that 
but it's been a really difficult year. They had this extra long extended buildup where everybody talked about the Sweden match. Everybody talked about that penalty shootout. And ultimately, even though they performed horribly throughout the entire tournament, they did better than they did the last time around. I think this team kind of needs to look at itself to analyze what went wrong on the pitch in the preparation because there are a lot of things that were gone. You don't have all of your team perform poorly if something isn't wrong. But I think I saw a lot of things like listing players who should never play for the team again and talking about firing Lotko. I think that is extremely irrational. All of these players are very, very good players. And although there maybe needs to be a bit of a changing of the guard to to kind of make rash decisions like that is is just not going to get anything done. But maybe this gives the team its spark back a little ability to fight for something because the thing about the women's national team is what do they fight for? <laughs> they have to fight for perfection, which is such a drain, but and it, and it adds all this pressure. I think there's a lot of things and there's a bigger conversation to be had after this Olympics. When you look at some of the swimmers for the U S who were big names, who really underperformed. When you talk about people pulling out of events like Simone Biles because of mental health, I think that the pressure and this year has been a huge, huge weight on so many people, especially these American athletes who are expected to have perfection and like that that's tough. And maybe they need to sit back and kind of reevaluate how things are done, what the preparation was like, but I don't know how you feel about that. And I went on a kind of a tangent, but I've just been thinking that there has to be something much like much deeper than just, Oh, the tactics were off. Oh, you know, Sweden outplayed them. Yes, they got outplayed on other occasions. Yes, but they never played to their standard. And there's something odd about that. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. And only the the United States can really answer that question internally about what exactly went wrong. There's a sense that since the Sweden game it just kind of shook the team and they were never really able to get back up on track. Like it's, it's, it's what I was talking about earlier. Like when Xavi talked about, like we forget what it's like to lose and how to respond to losing. And this team hadn't lost in 44 matches. I think it was up until the Sweden one. And it's just like, they, they didn't know what to turn to necessarily when that like immense psychological advantage they had kind of vanished when Daniel Van de Donk was saying stuff like we don't scare or the United States don't scare us anymore and can some of the Canadian players felt it was said I think they said like um afterwards they said they thought like this is our time and we defeat them and stuff like that and uh it, it just like the stuff they fell back on didn't work like some of the d- more direct football winning all their duels like the United States like I don't think there was a game where they won the majority of their duels right then like they they did things where they kind of shifted their defensive strategy at times like deeper blocks and then ultimately when time came like there was no game more than the Canada one where they tried to play on the ground not that they still didn't go direct plenty of times but there was clearly an effort to to try to like find Juliard to play pass around like it was abysmal. Like they literally couldn't string two to three passes together. It just felt like something about the entire way the Olympics developed just 
just kind of broke the United States like sense of confidence and assurance. And that had an effect on all the other things. Now, I think there were some tactical problems in earlier games. And I think ultimately, even if the United States are at their best, there's probably a reset that needs to happen in terms of reevaluating and redefining their strategy on the ball. Because I think just the level of teams they're facing now just kind of requires it. I don't know if necessarily going, you know, even like a, a mixed approach with directness is going to work as much. Like, I just think it, it hinders their ability to control games. I think they need to be more tactical and strategic with it. But okay, like, yeah, I mean, even if you have all that, they just, I've never seen the United States women's team ever play this badly. Like, it was truly maybe the worst game I've ever seen. Like, you can argue Sweden, I guess. But to me, that was against a side that was doing all-time stuff defensively, like truly ridiculously impressive. And Canada were doing something defensively. They had a 4-4-2 diamond defensive shape, which allowed them to go three versus three against the center backs and the pivot and Julie Ertz. So, like, clearly there wasn't just obvious easy progression. The United States would have to play wide to try to, like, stretch the diamond and then switch to far side. So there's some work to be done. But that stuff, like, I mean, if we're saying that's too much for the United States, like, we're talking about basic, fundamental uh, sequences and progressions and stuff like that. Like, the most fundamental way of testing a diamond press, like, we, we weren't even able to see what that was like, like, or, or whether Canada could deal with something more complex because the United States couldn't even get that far. We were literally watching Sauerbrunn pass the ball to Horan, who miscontrolled the ball on the touchline and went on a play for a throw in. And that happened like five times for each player. It was bewildering. And I mean, there definitely has to be a sense. Like, obviously, there was fatigue and every, like, there's a ridiculous amount of games with barely any rest. But the same is true for Canada. The same is true for Sweden. They, they've all played significantly better. And, and I, I mean, Canada didn't play all that well, but they still played better than the United States, especially in that first half. They had something slightly better going with the passing. I mean, you look at that, I just think the Sweden loss unsettled them in such a huge way that, and they tried to fall back on certain things. Vatko made adjustments that didn't really work. And it just all kind of snowballed into a game where there was no confidence, that assurance that was so key to everything that they did disappeared. And then the veterans, the key players that in the times when things aren't working for the United States will do something to pull them out of the fire. They never really showed up in the way we've seen in the past. And I think that gets to your point, Grant, about the conversation about a transition to a new generation. Because there is a lot of talk right now, people being like, there are players who should never play for the team again. And while that may be extreme, I think you kind of like briefly mentioned that we, we do need to think about transitioning to a new generation. And so just real quick, Carly Lloyd is 39 years old. And there's already, there was already talk about beforehand about, you know, her value to the team being a starter with Alex Morgan, Alex Morgan herself, who's 32 years old. Megan Rapino is 36 years old. Kristen Press is 32 years old. Tobin Heath is 33 years old. This is an offensive core, right? That is at the end of their prime, right? Like a Morgan Press, Heath probably have like one more World Cup run in them. So that's two years down the line. You can, you can do the math for ages and see where that, that adds up. But like, we have, whether you want to like disregard them completely or not, I, I think we have arrived at a point where you need to start thinking about like, what does the next USWNT look like? 
and that's where my knowledge kind of falters. Like I've been told that there's a good crop of cow. And actually, I mean, I saw some, some, like, I guess, fans of European teams saying like, there is no new generation. Americans were countering. What are your thoughts on the upcoming pool grant? And maybe who are just like two or three players that you possibly look to that could really like step in and rejuvenate this side if necessary. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there is a pool of young players. I mean, they, there are a lot of quality young players. And I think that we'll probably see, I think us soccer has four friendly scheduled for after this Olympics, which, you know, is normally a victory tour, but in this, I think you're going to maybe see some farewell matches for some of those players that you mentioned, especially in the forward line. I saw people mentioning like players in the midfield. That's, that's not going to happen. Lindsay Horan, Sam Mewis, Roosevelt are all going to be in that midfield for years to come. So I don't know what people are talking about. I don't know if they're... Julie just... Ertz is only 29 years old. Yeah. And I mean, you've got, you know, Andy Sullivan, who in an extended roster is probably on that as well and is the only real six replacement that we have. But as for some of the attacking talent, um, you look to a player like Midge Purse, who plays for Gotham FC, who just missed out on this roster. She'd been playing, actually, she had like a little Crystal Dunn role where they converted her to a fullback slash forward, where because they have all these veterans that weren't necessarily allowing space for her to go up top, she is so good. Then you've got people like Katarina Macario, who's scoring goals for fun at Lyon, and who we barely saw in this tournament, and when we did, we saw her in um, the midfield, but she plays as a striker for Lyon and has been doing really good. Um, and then you've got people even younger, like Sophia Smith, who plays for the Portland Thorns, and Trinity Rodman, who have been both pretty good in um, in the NWSL this year. And Trinity Rodman's 18 in her first professional season. Sophia Smith is in her kind of second or first and a half season because of the weird NWSL season last year. And these are players like Sophia Smith has caps, Midge has caps, um, Trinity Rodman hasn't yet, but I'm sure that they will. And I think we're going to see this kind of combination where you still keep these players like, like Rapino and Carly Lloyd around for these friendlies and in the buildup to this tournament to kind of mentor these players. But then I expect that these players kind of are part of that next generation. And like you said, I'm sh- sure we'll still see, you know, press and Alex Morgan for sure. But the others, and I mean, Lynn Williams, <laughs> Lynn Williams was uh, not even on this roster originally and was added because of the um, because of the extension of the roster to the alternates. And she comes on in a quarterfinal against the Netherlands and assists, could have had another one in scores. I mean, they all the U.S. is always producing top talent. I mean, the gap is obviously closing. We talk about it over and over and over again, which is a good thing because it pushes everybody and it means the game is growing. But I have no doubt that this team will recover and get back to being one of the title challengers in that next world cup, regardless of who's on the field. And um, I think everybody wants there to be a U.S. downfall, but the, the infrastructure for this team and like the investment is always there. We have the college system that's producing players. And now we start to see younger players going abroad as well. I don't, I don't think that you're going to see the U.S. fall off like everybody hopes that they will. Yeah, I think there is a legit conversation to be had about 
a power shift happening. I just think it actually sort of mimics like in geopolitical terms, there is all this talk about the end of the unipolar world after like the 90s went to the 2000s, people talked about the rise of China. And there was all discussion, the United States is like collapsing, you know, into the background or whatever. And uh, I'm sure there are debates that we had about that. It certainly seems like the United States is a dying empire at times. But at the moment, it's it's very much a multipolar world with the U.S. probably still at the top. Um, and I think something similar like that is just happening in football where it's it's going to turn into a multipolar world, right? This idea of the United States having this just multi-year period of utter dominance, being complete favorites going into every game, or right? at, at least strong favorites against the big sides. Like that era is probably over just because it was inevitable once other nations had elements that started to take women's football seriously. Like this is just what's going to happen. Like there's going to be a slightly more of a meritocracy when you have the big traditional European powers and South American powers, like have something, you know, start to take stuff seriously. Now there's still plenty of complaints about federations. You can argue the RFEF doesn't care about Spanish football at all, but they almost don't matter. Or there's only so much they can do to, that can hinder the success of women's football in Barcelona and Real Sociedad, Levante, Atletico Madrid, and now Real Madrid are like are, are getting serious because and, and have been serious in the other clubs' cases because they're the ones that actually do the work to develop the talent, right? In the US, it's the college system in Europe and most everywhere else, it's the club system, it's the academy system. And and what we're just seeing is kind of like a result of that, right? And so this, I, I do feel like, was an anomaly of an anomaly in terms of a disaster for the United States. Like, it just couldn't have really gone worse in any way whatsoever. And it's probably not reflective of their quality going forward, but they do need to do things, right? Whether that's generational reset, new tactics, veterans coming back to perform. But ultimately, they will come back to a position where they will be contenders, but no longer where I think you can just say, they're, they're going to win the World Cup, right? Like we did last time, even though it was still probably closer in some games that we'd like to admit. I mean, no one could have begrudged you being like the United States is going to win as much as that annoyed everyone else. And that's why they're happy. The United States is failing. Like the arrogance was earned and it's not anymore. I'm interested in what you have to say about this. And then after that, we'll move on to another contender for the question I'm about to ask. And they played in the, the next semifinal game. But who you think the best team in the world is right now? And this is such a, I guess, maybe a bad question because, you know, we, ha- we don't know how to assess the U.S. right now. Only so many teams played in the Olympics. But I'll just go ahead and say that I think Spain is probably the best team in the world. And everyone will say they have to prove it. They had a fairly easy group. And I'll agree with you, but I'm just for prediction's sake, I'm not going to wait till they prove it and it becomes obvious and then everyone comes in and says it. I think it's actually fairly obvious now if you've been watching them and you just know the players they have. I think Spain are probably the best in the world, not massive, overwhelming favorites. But when I look at that squad and the chemistry they have coming from the Barcelona side and you, you look at some of the serious games like they've had like versus the Netherlands and how they just toyed with them. I mean, they look like the team to me, and then we can talk about like the Swedens, the U.S.'s. I'm interested in what your thoughts on that, whether you still think not the U.S. is the best in the world or actually like Sweden is the best or, or some other uh, international side that I'm overlooking. Yeah, so I mean, I think that 
you can make an argument for a lot of these teams. Spain is obviously one of them. I think you and I have been pretty straightforward about the fact that we think that they are going to win the Euros, and I wouldn't be surprised if they did it handily. I think you have to say Sweden's up there with the tournament they're having and how they've been able to game plan against the United States. But I I also think like the likes of France, who you haven't gotten to see in this tournament, Germany are up in there. And I mean, for me as a fan, I think that the U.S. is the best team in the world. The, the, The forum didn't come through in this tournament, and there are teams that are playing better than them, like like Spain. So I, I guess I have like two kind of answers where I'm like, Spain is probably the best with Sweden a little, maybe a half step behind just based on pure quality across the pitch and tactics. Maybe I think that they, they both have two very adept national team managers who, who get it right a majority of the time. But I mean, I'm never going to write out the U.S. as one of the best teams in the world as well. But the thing is, is the waters are muddied, and that's a super, super good thing that we can have a debate about who is the best team in the world because it is growing, because there are quality players from all over the place. I mean, I was really disappointed in how Brazil played against Canada because I think on their day that they can beat most teams as well, and it's fun to see representation from all over the world, you know you see kind of this very Eurocentric and like Brazil and Argentina in the men's game. And it's fun that in the women's game, you have the Australias, you've got Canada, the U S you've got the European powerhouses. You also see teams like Nigeria and Zambia, and then some more of the South American teams like Brazil as well. It's, it's a really exciting time. And to see teams be able to go toe to toe with the U S is fun and it makes everyone better. And Japan is pretty good as well, right? They're kind of an old power, but they're still in the mix. And I know there was the whole like 4-2 like, versus Australia in the group stages. But personally, I think Japan probably gave Sweden the toughest time in this Olympics so far. There was a stretch that I actually went back and analyzed possession sequence by possession sequence. Maybe like a 25 to 30 minute period in that first half where they scored the equalizing goal where it's just they just picked apart Sweden's defensive structure just really, really well. And now the problem for them is, as we kind of discussed a little bit on the last podcast, they couldn't handle Sweden's offense on their own. But when it comes to like sophisticated possession-based sides, like Japan is, is up there. And, and I wouldn't say they're, I wouldn't name them as being, as being contender for the best because I just think there's too many other obvious ones that you all have stronger cases. But they're, they're, they're a very good side. Right. Well, and, and they're going their, through one of those transitional periods too, where we might see in a few right. years, like around that World Cup, that they are one of the top sides, you know, depending on how the yeah. progression goes, how the federation handles it. Right. And so to your point, this is a very exciting time in women's football. And yeah, it's sad for us as Americans or whatever, but we're all just because we follow Real Madrid and st- like we're also fans of like the game as a whole, especially the European game. And uh, just, if I can sit back and be a neutral, like it's a lot of fun watching this man. Like I didn't expect, you know, the Olympics to be, maybe not this match day, but in general, I've, I've quite enjoyed myself. Right. I, there's plenty of holes in this Netherlands side, but man, were they fun to watch and man, do they have like top quality down. So just quickly, I guess to like sum up my case for Spain, because I only like hinted at it is obviously like what tends to drive great international sides, at least in the, in the men's game. Because 
and women's football, it, 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 the club, club football has lagged behind quite a bit in most cases. And it's not how it really works for the United States, right? And, and something entirely different was driving it, like the college system and the rules that they had in place that forced colleges to provide uh, equal financial support to, to men's and women's teams, which obviously then, oh, all of a sudden you've created like the greatest international women's team of all time. Wow, what a surprise. But back to my main point, right, is like, I think what we're, we're going to start seeing international sides being driven by the same thing that's being driven on the men's side, which is great club teams that manage to consolidate most of the national talent within that side, create a really cohesive, high chemistry, tactical structure and understanding between all of them that you can just transplant to the international team. And then on the sides, you just pick the best players from the national players from, from some of the other teams who fit in and add well. And then they just go and do their thing on the international stage. We saw that most vividly with the, the men's Spanish team from 2008 to 2012, obviously coming from Barcelona. And that's happening again with the women's national team from Spain with that Barcelona core just being translated straight to Spain. With an all-time, I, I just, there isn't a better midfield in the world. I don't know if it's controversial or not, but Pate Guijado, Alexia Puteas, Aitana Bonmati, right? Mariona is in there. Then you take the Real Madrid force, the now Real Madrid force, Esther Gonzalez, Hikari Garcia. Marta Cardona has been a starter recently for Spain. You have Mapi Leon as a center back. You have Irene Paredes, who has now come to Barcelona. And then you have Ona Bate and Jorge Vilda can play her at left back. They have one of the very best left backs in the world. Like, it's just, it's an insane side with the best midfield core in the world. One of the greatest midfield cores of all time with amazing starting 11 attacking personnel with incredible depth. Like someone like Athenea del Castillo like, is not going to make that team for a very long time because of the people that are ahead of her. And then quality defensive personnel, right? And then you think about someone like Misa, who currently is not even a starting goalkeeper for Spain. It's, it's ridiculous. And they're, pro- like they're very much entering their prime as a national side. And when I think about all of that on top of the fact that the, a very sophisticated tactical cohesion already exists, I think they're by far the best possession-based team in the game. And it's, uh, they're a nightmare to face. And when I watched them toy with the Netherlands the way they did, I was like, damn, like, <laughs> this, is, this is a good side. I don't know if them facing really good teams is going to change that much, but we'll see. That's yet to be proven. I'm kind of making some assumptions here, but I'm doing so because hopefully when we see a couple years from now or, or next year at the Euros, I can, I can be proven right and I can come back to this and be like, see, I told you. So that's my case for Spain. I just wanted to get it out there because I was thinking about it all day. Grant, do you have anything you want to add to that or let, yeah, move well, on? And just in other news, I don't know if you saw today, but La Masia is opening up their women's side of the academy again. I mean, which is just a huge bump for Spanish football. Hopefully that that can happen at all of the clubs across the country and across Europe. And, you know, we see the, these kind of progressions in the U.S. where Olivia Moultrie for the Portland Thorns is making appearances at 15 and there was previously an age um, restriction. So it's just it's just super exciting. And yeah, I think honestly, I don't even know 
maybe maybe Spain and Sweden will be a tough matchup. Maybe the Netherlands with um, Mark Parsons coming in can fix their defensive problems. But as of right now, I don't see a team that is going to like, I think that Spain could win that Euro and do it, you know, in style. Yeah, so the other thing I kind of forgot I wanted to say, and this is probably something I should have added on earlier, because it feels like we basically moved past the whole United States-Canada discussion. We kind of forgot to talk about the game a little bit, so maybe we can like just quickly touch back on like the penalty incident and stuff, that the game really wasn't that interesting or complicated, honestly, to assess, which is why we're into all these other things. But I thought Rapino's answer to like questions about her future was quite interesting because she was basically like oh you guys already want to like bury me and act like i'm dead i mean th- those weren't the words she used but i can't remember it was something to put that me effect, out right? to the pasture was the exact right. wording yeah right and uh that that's the int- and carly lloyd in very carly lloyd fashion was doing like sprints like some style of like suicide sprints or something after they lost like which was her own way of saying i'm not going anywhere right and that's the thing with such strong legendary characters is it really that easy to say that we move on from a shift? Because I kind of feel like it has to be a thing where either you say you're gone or you stay. I don't know if there's, maybe I'm, I'm underestimating the professionalism. I'm underestimating the cohesion with the squad. Again, Grant, you would know better, but it does seem like with that kind of attitude, which I don't begrudge them for, because that's the attitude of all time players. Right. But it just seems like it, it becomes a little difficult, right? You have them around, especially at Carly Lloyd. Like, I mean, to speak frankly, I mean, we all know it has a massive ego, right? And she has a problem with not being, you know, one of the main people in the squad. She's taken her shots at her teammates before, even if it's been, even if she hasn't necessarily called out names, right? Like, when you, when you start adding, like, I guess more players who maybe are not going to be as overt about that, but who start to feel like, hey, man, like, I... I should be in this team. Like I should, I should be starting. Like, I think that idea of that, that shift becomes a little tricky, right? Because what do you do with when you have a player that's like, I, I mean, I'm not going anywhere. He laughs at the idea of like, they're, they're going anywhere soon. And it's pretty clear about like, this is not the end for me. And then you have Carly Lloyd kind of in her own way saying her own thing. Like it's tough. I, I don't know if it's necessarily that easy. I don't know if there's really much for you to add on to that, but I'd be interested I, to hear your thoughts. I would just say that, you know, Megan Rapino and Carly Lloyd, although devastated about this result, there is another game. And I think that it's really easy for us to see that we lost in a semifinal and be like, oh, the tournament's over. And you start making these overarching conclusions. And a lot of Rapino's press conference, especially, was we still have a chance to play for an Olympic medal. And that's a thing. We can maybe push all these answers off until after the tournament and maybe the we get like a clearer picture and she comes out and speaks a little more on her future but i think that whole put me out to the pasture comment may be her way of just kind of deflecting and refocusing because this team's going to want to step up and win that third place medal i mean if they're not going to want to have gone to olympics without a medal it's never happened before yeah good point i keep forgetting that yeah. there's a third place match and then it's just a bizarre concept. If you let me go on a little a little tangent, you know, speaking of legendary figures, we get to see Christine Sinclair in a Gold Cup match, which although I was devastated to see the um the US go out 
Christine Sinclair is like a legendary Portland player, a legendary player for the game. And I thought it was just really emblematic of her classiness and her leadership that, you know, Alyssa Nair comes out of the game due to an injury and Adriana French goes in goal and they are club teammates with Portland. And she walks straight up, grabs that ball and gives it to Jesse Fleming. She's practiced. Christine Sinclair has taken more penalties against Adriana French than probably anyone in her entire career because they train together so often. And I think that was a real, obviously mature moment where she's, she could have the limelight. She could score her like 189th goal and extend her streak. But Branch knows her as well as anyone. And she hands it to Jesse Fleming and Jesse Fleming was cold from the spot. Branch guessed the right way, had a good jump and was even a bit off her line. I think if she saved it, it would have came back. And Fleming was just ruthless with that thing. Yeah. So then the, the Sinclair thing was just, I guess, kind of piggybacking off the, the point of her maturity and everything. Like if I'd scored 180 something goals and my main responsibilities in this game was defensive and to do a player marking job on Julie Ertz and then do a bunch of dirty work linking play and have barely any opportunities to get in the box. Just me personally, I'd be like, I'm 38 years old. I'm like the greatest legend in this country's history. Fuck that. Make the rookie do it. And she didn't just do it. She seemed to like do it with a great enthusiasm that I honestly find like scarcely believable. Like you just think about the legend that she is. She's one of the goats. And she was out there doing a hell of a job defensively on Julia. It's a 38 year old just busting her ass for 86 minutes. And then gave up the penalty for very specific reasons, as you talked about. I mean, I don't know how many players in the sport in general are doing that, but also, like, I'm just thinking about the men's game because that's still where my greatest knowledge is. And I just, I don't know how many, how many players of her equal to her status would be doing that, man. That was really impressive to me. And yeah. And um, if you guys want to learn more about her, I've had the opportunity to talk to her. I've had, the opportunity to talk to her coaches and teammates about her. She is an absolutely just humble, amazing person and player. And if you want kind of like a synopsis of it all, Steph Young at The Athletic wrote kind of this piece about Christine Sinclair where she talked to a bunch of her teammates and they just talked about how much of a great teammate she is. And it was kind of fitting that that came out, you know, on the eve of the match. And then you have this moment. And now she has the opportunity to go play and win a gold medal for Canada. So I'm super happy for her. It's, it's awesome. Speaking of humility, Grant with the little humble brag there, I got opportunity to talk to her and all her teammates. All right, Grant. I mean, uh, Zoom press conferences, man, <laughs> they are clutch. So I, I think that pretty much covers the game. I think we just kind of forgot to talk about these events, which, which were important to cover. But ultimately... It's a very simple game, like often not a good thing really in football, right? Football is generally very complicated. When it's easy to analyze, it means there are problems and there are a lot of problems in this game. We're good with this, right? We can talk about Sweden's 1-0 victory. Absolutely. This one was like far more cautious and less eventful than that crazy 4-2 group stage game, which is probably the one where Sweden kind of Paid, like the least amount of attention they switched on and off because they put all in that effort versus the u.s and they just didn't come in as locked in versus australia you could kind of tell like just 
each 10 minute segment was so drastically different and the game swung all over the place, right? At one point, Australia were leading 2 1. And Sam Kerr, as we mentioned in one of the last podcasts, could have scored four goals, but she only had two instead. This one, you had the same setups from both sides the 4 2 3 1 for Sweden, the 3 4 3 from Australia, that's a 5 2 3 defensive block with the 4 4 1 1 Sweden defensive structure. And it just kind of felt like that using the experience of what happened in the group stage game, Sweden kind of just became more cautious. And like there was a little bit of pressing, like consistent pressing in that way we've described the way they pressed and, and trying to teams on the wing for like about five minutes. And then after that, it was very sporadic. Like Aslani Blackstinius just backed the hell off and looked to, sh- to just block off the lanes into the double pivot. It just... Like they just like they were they were getting played around by Australia's back three. And I, I think at this point there's enough evidence. Obviously, I'm biased, but as objectively as I can try to say, I think there's enough evidence now that using a back three is the way to go against sweet this specific defensive structure from Sweden. And the fact that it got them to back off and stop that pressing was a win. Now, it doesn't allow you to magically start creating chances against it because they still have a compact passive medium 4-4-2 block but it's kind of the first domino that needs to fall in beating sweden right like stop them from from allowing them from from allowing them to turn you over you know deep or in midfield areas because that's where i think a lot of their offense still comes from transition opportunities counter attacks and the defensive structure like allows them to force that once you do that you you're in a position where now you, you, can, you, you can just have time on the ball in the back and think about what your next progression is going to be. And that's where Australia struggled. And it's kind of where I predicted them to struggle. And it's why I said, even though I think they have the good base structure to, to tackle Sweden in the initial phase, I don't know if they have enough in the middle to, to progress, right? Because their double pivot was essentially shut out of the game. I don't know that much about the Australian national team. So maybe their central midfielders are better than I think they are. Regardless, it didn't matter because they were shouted out of the game. And so a lot of the progression fell on the center backs and playing out wide to the wing backs and then trying to work things from there. And either I, they were, I think, just didn't take enough of the f- advantage of the fact that Ellie Carpenter, who's, who, as we discussed before, is a, is a really good fullback slash wing back. Generally, you want to take advantage of her by playing out of the wing. But if you're going to play her at center back, Versus, and you have a three versus two advantage against a passive front two. A, a classic way of tackling that and countering that is you need the center back to dribble forward, dribble forward, try to attract pressure, try to force reaction from defense, and then pick out a pass, right? And that's not an easy thing to do. But if you have someone like Ellie Carpenter at center back, it's almost like that's the reason you played her there, right? If you're going to do that, what else is the reason? I didn't really see enough of that, right? The crossfields passing and switches and direct play, like just trying to force it into Sam Kerr was not accurate enough to, to really cause consistent threat for Australia. And then, I mean, the wingbacks, like, like also like just kind of tried to force it into, into the front line just way too quickly and without really setting things up without the accuracy. And so consistent progression to final third was not there for Australia. When they did get into the final third, they looked rather threatened have Sam Kerr running into the box with also a couple other forwards joining in and they caused some trouble. They had a free kick that was disallowed. Only later I learned because 
there are players in the front line. I think we're offside who ended up blocking other players. And so it was a legit foul, but it was not something that I found observable in real time. Nevertheless, in that instance, Kerr scored the free kick. So there was danger going Australia's way. They had dangerous crosses that didn't necessarily connect. It's just that they were not able to get in the final third enough to launch enough deliveries into the box. And ultimately, I just think their buildup, it just, just wasn't sophisticated enough. It wasn't enough. They, they, did, they got one victory versus Sweden, but they couldn't get the second victory. And without the second victory in the middle third, it wasn't enough to get enough of the third victories in the final third to go on and, and score a goal. And that's kind of where Australia like, really suffered for me. And where Sweden was, just, okay, they gave up the pressing, but they were still comfortable. Now, I would say like the other positive of what Australia did is, as I mentioned before, it takes away a lot of Sweden's transition if they're not pressing and forcing turnovers. And so a lot of onus was put on Sweden's regular possession play to create all of their offense. And uh, it was interesting because I thought in the group stage game, they had spurts where they really exploited the lack of like, with in the front block of five in Australia's five through three structure. That just didn't happen today. There wasn't enough taking advantage of the fact that Jakobsen was getting one versus ones with the left center back as the left wing backs had to step up to Hanna Glass when they played wide. I mean, we talked about that on the other podcast. So that was a thing that Sweden were exploiting in the group stage game. Barely saw it. They were trying to force the ball into Rolfo a lot. And it just didn't really get going for them until the second half where they had a rather fortunate goal, which we can discuss a solid 10 to 15 minute period where they're able to maintain pressure. And then it reverted back to kind of the old, the, the old style of play. And then it just it got, the game just kind of went from there, ended as it ended. There was one very late chance for Sweden that probably should have been put away by the Blackstenies, but otherwise there weren't that many chances. And it was like both sides couldn't really figure out how to get the possession game going. Though Sweden obviously had the higher potential to, and on the day, just didn't really get it clicking the way they did. I could keep going on and on. Like I have, I have like this entire conversation just keeps building upon itself. But Grant, I'll let you get in here to, to kind of say whatever you want about the game and, and maybe build off some of the stuff that I mentioned. I'm going to take it a little different direction. I think Australia was um, got a little bit of the bad karma that they had the good karma of against Great Britain. You know, we talked about mary fowler having that extremely wicked deflection that gives that gives australia the go-ahead goal against great britain and they end up advancing and then what a crazy weird sequence that led to the goal right after halftime this weird shot that kind of bounces and then it gets tipped off the crossbar and then there's kind of what i thought was going to potentially be a penalty on ellie carpenter she kind of wrapped up one of the the Swedish players, and then Frida Lena Rolfo gets her foot on it and just kind of side foots it into the net. It was really strange. It pains me to say that Rolfo is going to Barcelona because she seems like a very likable, good player, and I can only have so many mixed emotions about cool, likable players coming back to haunt Real Madrid on Barcelona. But, um, I mean, it was it was kind of a dud. <laughs> like you were talking about but i think both teams were trying not to lose the game at points rather than trying to take the game by the scruff of the neck and instill their tempo their style of play but 
again, we talked about it, Sweden just kind of being able to get it done throughout this tournament in a variety of ways, whether they're playing well or not, and whether they have their best players on the pitch or not. What I was going to go to with Frida Lina Rolfo is what you were talking about. With I enjoyed watching her. She's been like really fun, especially with some of these powerful long shots she scored. She had one that rattled the crossbar in the first half. Like she just seems like she has it all as an offensive player. She's big. She's strong. She's fast. She's a good dribbler. She has an incredibly good shot. She can create. And she's going to Barcelona. <laughs> like pain. I, I, I'm just like, what are they going to do with like all those wingers? I mean, you've got Mariona and Vika Martins. I know can also play on the right, but she's definitely best on the left. Mariona adds a whole nother dimension on the left. Rolfo has played on the left for Sweden this entire time. Like, how exactly is this going to work? And there's no, even if you say one of them is moving to the right, there's absolutely not a single one of them who's displacing Caroline Graham Hansen. Like, I mean, one of the complaints about the Barcelona players that was reported was a lack of squad rotation, right? I mean, maybe they're just going to rotate and just kill you in 700 different ways. I suppose so, but I mean, you, I mean, you could have probably used Lika Martins a bit more throughout that entire season. I think people who only watched her the semifinals and finals of the Champions League just kind of assumed that she was the starter, and it was Mariona who like carried by far like the the biggest load of the offense. Like I think after Hansen, so I, I guess that we're just going to see a rotation of the most formidable attackers we've ever seen. That does not please me at all, but. Man, in terms of deciding your best 11, that's a headache because Lika Martins is a big game player, your classic cut inside, very skilled shooter from, from that sort of angle and distance, uh, a really threatening one versus one player. Frida Lino Rolfo can go both ways off the dribble, even more physically imposing. And then you have Mariona who can do all of that, but she provides these dynamic overloads and buildup that just allow you to rip teams like i don't know and itana who's gone out wide too at points yeah but i think that's done now with unless this is a severe injury crisis but man i i I really don't know how you decide who plays on that left wing and uh it's almost like a task that is such a good problem to have that it's almost bad like I, i would just have my head would explode trying to make that decision i would be too indecisive so yeah barcelona are going to be even scarier next season so that's good to know. The other thing I was going to talk about is uh, we can talk Sweden's possession game not being that effective, but I don't know if Aslani had a great game. This was probably her weakest Olympic performance, in my opinion. Like, obviously, there was the whole possession stuff. There was a difficulty of finding Aslani between the lines. But, there, but because Australia were trying all these long balls and stuff, they were actually conceding counters through that. And Sweden were just not efficient. Either they lose the second ball or when they got it, poor touches, poor passes. I think Aslani was a bit of a part of that. Maybe she's gotten tired at this point. I thought defensively, even though it was more passive, she did her job. She was pretty good. But offensively, probably a night to forget for her. Just just didn't get stuff going in transition the way that we normally expect from her. Nowhere near like the near-perfect performance we saw versus the United States. And uh, she'll probably be looking to respond in the final and be a lot more influential offensively. But I thought it was just one where if you weren't paying attention, you, you would kind of miss that she was playing. Um, because if you're not paying attention to the offensive side, you're not going to pay attention to the defensive side. And uh, 
the most you would have noticed was a lot of giveaways. And because we're a Real Madrid podcast, I have to talk about Asalani. So I'm just mentioning that I don't really have that much more to say. We know what her real quality is. And sometimes you have games like this. She did put the ball in the back of the net right late in the match, but it was ruled off for it was, offside. It was ruled, ruled offside by the person who passed it to her well offside. So that was yeah. a good run there. She was, she was sharp in that moment. But uh, in terms of like that consistent influence with her passing and receptions on the half turn, we expect a lot better from her. And she'll be wanting to do, do better versus Canada, especially if they come out with a similar defensive structure, like the ability to play through them will become crucial, right? So we'll just see how she responds. But uh, just worth mentioning that this wasn't the greatest performance from her, and that probably affected the entire fact that Sweden didn't have a great offensive performance. Do we have much to add after that? I think it's going to be an interesting final. I really do. I think Canada's defense could maybe stifle Sweden a little bit. Uh, The question is, is where do goals come from? Because... In this knockout stage, Canada's advanced on a 0-0 draw with Brazil after winning on penalties, and then a 1-0 win today against the U.S. where they had one shot on target, which was the penalty. But I think as this tournament has progressed and we've seen Japan do certain things, we've seen Australia do certain things, there have been little spots where you can take advantage of Sweden. And if they're able to do it on the day. Maybe they come away with it. But I think that Sweden has still got to be the favorite going into this, just with the way that they've been able to kind of get through every game. I think they've won every single match they've played in this uh, tournament, which is which is impressive, especially considering the fact that they've played Australia twice, the U.S. once, and um, some other good teams along the way. The thing about Canada's offensive struggle, I think it's crucial because they might be able to stifle Sweden a little bit, but man, how are they going to score versus that defense? We talked about Sinclair's unselfishness and all of that, but I think there's another discussion to be had about, okay, she's willing to do anything, but is using her as the link player really the best way? I mean, you've got one of the greatest box threats of all time outside the box most of the time. And maybe that has a little bit to do with why you can't score goals. Like that's, I, I've, I've seen like Canadian fans on the TL, like just be really frustrated with that. And that's, that's something to consider going up against on form, the best defense of the tournament in, in Sweden. And yeah, I, I don't know if they can necessarily get away with that. So I'd say Sweden are, are the clear favorites. The bronze medal match should be interesting. First of all, because I think Australia is just a really fun team to watch, but also for the Sad United that States Ellie's response. gone, though. Ellie's gone, which was a shame. She had a red card at the end. Which but... I also think, like, she kind of had to do. Like, if you, you yeah, think would have been two trying to advance, it's late in the game. You kind of have to make that foul. It was a bit of that um, Fede Valverde situation in the Super Cup a couple years ago. It just didn't swing the right way, but that's an example of how it could have. And she needed to do that to see if uh, you could potentially get to that final. But uh, it's going to be sad to not see her in that game. It'll be a loss, but I wonder how much of a relative loss will be because I personally don't think they were using her that well anyway. Like, she was good. I thought she did remarkably well as a right center back. She added value on the ball, but not to the maximum that I think could have been done with using her in that position. So I don't know how much it will change in a relative sense, though, compared to the ideal situation, I think it changes a lot. But, I mean, obviously, no matter what, they'd rather have her. Um, so you'd think the United States would win, but that's what we thought versus Canada. 
the way the United States responds to this, I mean, we've been saying this every game now, but this is their last, this is the last chance in competitive competition for a long time for them to respond. And winning a bronze medal would go some ways to calming things down, right? I don't think it would by any means stop the people who were saying black people should be fired, et cetera, et cetera, from saying that. But people are just looking for reassurance now because we're not even looking for them to be the best team in the world anymore. Like, we're just looking to see, like, are you even something of the team that we used to watch? Because in not a single game. in possession so- would be a plus. Yeah, retaining the ball for five passes, how about? Like, are you anything of the team that we used to see? Because the, the entire thing is just like, this team has just looked nothing like what we like used to see, which has been the most concerning thing about this entire thing. And the bronze medal match is a chance for them to kind of say like, hey, we're still in there. I mean, that was terrible, but we'll be back. That, well, yeah, that's and, what that one is for. And I wonder if maybe you see a team that plays a little more freely, maybe some different personnel comes in without this kind of pressure of having to win the gold medal match obviously you still want to win this one because you want a medal if you don't win this match you don't get a medal but maybe they have a bit of a mental reset and they're like let's focus on this one let's play a little freer and you see maybe a better combination in midfield which i think has been kind of one of the main struggles for the u.s is their inability to connect passes with the midfield three which is just, I mean, we all blamed Haran in the beginning, and then Julie Ertz came in versus Canada and couldn't complete a pass. Like, it's just bizarre. Ertz, Rose Lavelle, Haran, Mewis. Sam Mewis, yeah. Talk- I mean, they've all been off kilter. I mean, it's just weird. Yeah, it, kind of inexplicable, and uh, we'll be hoping to see it. I mean, we have to wake up at 4 a.m. to watch that show. <laughs> it better I'm be better. I'm going to just say, the, the other couple 4 a.m. games, I think, was the Sweden match and the Canada match, so we do not have a great record in Kashima with 4 a.m. games. So who who knows? Just uh, as like an Uno reverse card type thing, the final for some reason is at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which for the Europeans as Central European time will be 4 a.m. So I guess they just decided to <laughs> screw over both sides of the globe once. I all right, I, I guess that's what it is. Yeah, the um, scheduling in this tournament has been atrocious. I, I maybe maybe they ex- they were so confident the U.S. was going to make the final. They're like, let's schedule the final for American time, the best possible one, well, right? Because that's not it's nice for Eastern Standard Time all the way to Pacific. And now we're in a position where uh, I guess it's still nice for Canada, but I don't think that there was ever a plan that Canada was going to win. Maybe there I was thought no, that was, was the reason, but but extremely weird that they didn't switch the timing of these two semifinals. Like you look at Australia and Sweden would have been much better at this 4 a.m. Eastern time zone. And then the viewership for us and Canada who are both in North America, if you put them at 7 a.m., you probably get way better numbers. But like I said, it's been a tad odd with like four, all four, quarterfinal matches almost overlapping kicking off an hour from each other and not being able to find games blah 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 it's been odd oh yeah and the other thing is if i'm not wrong real madrid's first preseason match in the kaif trophy will be on the same day oh sweet as god the bronze medal match in the final at 1 p.m eastern standard time i think and we're still i mean i still have no idea whether we'll be able to watch it but if we do, that's three games throughout just the entire day, right? Very early in the morning, smack middle of the day, late at night, 
it looks like we're in for another one, Grant. Yeah, I just remember the season ending and being like, oh, now I'll have a little time to rejuvenate. And then this offseason nope. has been way busier than the actual Real Madrid Femenino season. So absolutely no time. The yeah. Euros, Olympics, the craziness of the offseason. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna have to wake up at 6 a.m. anymore. And here I am waking up at 4 a.m. And the season is already coming back. And and there's no indication that the the timings are gonna be any better. So uh I, I, I just, I guess that's the life. Coffee and naps, uh, I guess. Coffee and naps. That award show podcast we were promising, it's still on to be recorded tomorrow with a bunch of special guests that I told some patrons about who are on a live call. No one else. Um, hopefully they haven't spread it. But if they did, you will only know who one of the guests is and not three others. There'll be four special guests on that podcast. It should be really fun. I mean, with six people on it, either be utter chaos <laughs> or it'll be like the greatest podcast ever. Either way, I'm sure you guys a little will bit have of a both. Lot of it'll be good. <laughs> I'm sure you guys will have a lot of fun with it. I'm super excited for it. And just keep your eyes out for that. And it should be a good one. So I think that about wraps this one up, Grant. About an hour podcast, I think, which is fair for two semifinal games. Once again, thanks for doing this with me, and we'll catch you guys later. All Madrid. All Madrid.